this issue of Risk Management Monthly. More on Tug Valley Pharmacy, an important case you ought to know about. Subarachnoid hemorrhage, the medical legal consequences thereof. And lastly, 10 times HIPAA may not apply. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, Happy New Year. It's January, the January issue of Risk Management Monthly for 2016. It's Greg in Ann Arbor, Michigan, where we're watching the snow plows. And Rick, of course, is in L.A. watching his pool man. But that's how we've chosen to live our lives. What can I tell you? So, Rick, best of the new year to you. And to you, Gregory. We've been friends for many, many of these years gone by. And yes, absolutely. The pool guy was here. Uh, You'll be pleased to know that it's immaculate. We'll turn the hot tub on a little bit later, but I don't want to rub any of this in, of course. Yes, I, I I understand that. You know, we have the polar bears and all that sort of thing, but it's, it's again, a way of life. This month, just just the other day, be, uh, this being the middle of the month as we're recording, I got to hear the State of the Union address, and it always brought up a line to me that Will Rogers used after hearing one of FDR's addresses. He said, if we got one-tenth of what was promised to us in the State of the Union speeches, there wouldn't be any inducement to go to heaven. And I, I see that politics doesn't change much day to day. Well, no, actually, I, I was uh, doing something else I couldn't watch, but I was probably working on the notes for this presentation, Gregory. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure I'm sure you were doing that. One of the things I wanted to cover a little bit was I wanted to go back to Tug Valley uh, Pharmacy. And the reason I wanted to do that is because um, in the, uh, what issue was it here? Oh, yeah, the August 2015 issue of uh, EP Monthly, that fabulous publication that both of us write columns for, Jesse Pines and his colleagues wrote a story about it. Now, you and I had talked about this about maybe two or three months ago, and I thought it, we had kind of killed it. But 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 Jesse's – let me just summarize the issue here. Uh, these 29 plaintiffs, all of them drug addicts, sued the Tug Valley Pharmacy and, and three others – uh, and Ford physicians for uh, making them addicts, or or not uh, not making them addicts, but prolonging their addiction, or, pro- or providing contributing, access, contributing to their delinquency. Yes, you exactly. Know? Yes, exactly. And, and so this was perceived as a potential slippery slope because in West Virginia, where this case went to the trial, the decision was in favor of the plaintiffs, and they said yes. You can sue uh, these uh, entities and recover uh, damages because uh, they uh, they facilitated your drug addiction because of a reckless and wanton use of uh, prescription prescriptions from these this facility in particular. They were talking about the Mountain Medical Center in Williamson, West Virginia, and the reason I wanted to get back to it is because. There is the perception that an emergency doctor working uh, in a routine emergency department could potentially become liable uh, under this statute in West Virginia or this or this or this case in West Virginia and be accused of facilitating uh, drug addiction by writing for you know five Vicodins or ten Vicodins or something like that or giving a shot in the emergency department. And I just think that that is so far away from the truth in this case that I thought we really ought to get down to a little bit regarding the nitty-gritty because this is not anything like a regular emergency department, the, the situation regarding this case. Greg, well, you want to tell us a little uh, bit about boys, it? Boys and girls, let's understand here that one of the doctors who wasn't even part of the suit because she'd already absconded, she was now in the Bahamas, her name was Catherine Hoover, had actually written – Now, catch this. Between 2002 and 2010, that sounds like about eight years, she'd written 355,000 prescriptions for narcotics. Now, I don't care how you cut this. 
these four pharmacies, which were basically mom and pop kind of pharmacies, this wasn't CVS kinds of things. There was no external controls here. Do you think they knew that something funky was going on? Of course, but they were making so many millions of dollars that they're not going to come down on these folks. And uh, by the way, that pharmacy is now owned by the state police of the uh, state of West Virginia. They took over the pharmacy. They took over all the damn uh, uh, cash. They took everything on this deal. Well, they took about a third of a million dollars, but the amount of money that this clinic uh, generated was in the uh, almost the tens of millions of dollars. They had an arrangement where you would go there and you would pay uh, them $350 for your first visit and then $150 thereafter, the, the, the plaintiffs. And then you would get your prescription. And obviously, they were writing uh, well over 100 prescriptions a day. And this is all, was not only this one doctor. They were all in cahoots. And these doctors, some of them have lost their license. Uh, I think at least two of them served six months in federal uh, prison for this, uh, their, their um, behavior. And so this is this was a pill mill, Greg. This was a, a out and out pill mill. And yes, to say yeah. that, well, you might get in trouble in an emergency department, it's just not true. The other thing is, is that, you know, when a lot of doctors say they're emergency doctors, you know, you may work one shift uh, in some tiny place. I know. A month I and know. say, I'm an emergency doctor. These weren't emergency doctors. These were doctors <laughs> working in in this quote-unquote clinic, it was just, it was this amazing what they got away with. Yes, I, I we understand that, but let's look at a couple of points here that do need amplification. The chief justice in this case, uh, Margaret Workman, writing for the majority of the court, because it was a three-to-two decision, said a plaintiff's wrongful or immoral conduct does not prohibit them from seeking damages and the results of the actions of others, which means each one of them had committed crimes, robberies, home invasions, bad checks, etc., to get the money to buy the drugs. They invoked a principle called in pare delectio, which is Latin for, hey, you got to share the badness here. So they were willing to let people go back after these doctors for the crimes, for the monies lost in getting the money to buy the drugs. That is something that is sort of a new precedent, and we've got to think about it. Uh, A second issue here, and this was brought up to me by one of my young friends who is uh, both an MD and a JD, and he said, this is a warning shot across the bow to all physicians and emergency medicine groups. That is, sure, if some kid comes in there with a broken ankle and you give him a dozen Vicodin tablets, that's not the issue here. And I don't think anybody should be afraid of treating obvious pain in front of you. But if you're also writing that person's 54th prescription uh, for the past two years, then you got to start asking yourself some questions. The real issue here is when do you become an enabler? When do you become part, and this is the phrase they used in the case, the chain of addiction? And I think you need some good sense. I think a lot of departments are now looking over their policies and saying, you know, when you've been here enough times, we're going to check the registry. And every state now has a narcotics registry. Uh, And we're going to ask a few more questions. I think that's the message to send to the listeners is don't be afraid to treat somebody with pain in front of you. But by the same token, ask reasonable questions here. Uh, That's the issue. I think that was the whole point of my concern is that this was just one more straw on the camel's back of being a oligoanalgesia advocate. You know, we got the state, the city of uh, New York saying you can't give out so many pills uh, for pain uh, issues in the emergency department. And then they said, wait wait a second, that's the same state that said you can't buy more than a 16 ounce soda. Well they, well, they were trying, and that didn't work. But the but, yeah. what, but what did work was they're saying to their 
the physicians who were employed in the, in the city hospitals, which were a goodly number of them, that this is the limit that we expect you to have. Now, when they, they backed off a little bit and said, oh, these are guidelines. But when I, when I first heard the speech made by um, the prior mayor of uh, New York, this was v very clear that this was not guidelines. This is what the expectation was. And so I'm personally concerned that we create more and more and more ammunition for uh, doctors becoming oligoanalgesia specialists with them saying, well, they won't let me. They're always looking for some excuse why we can't give pain medicines and get away with it. And I think that I understand the problem. I understand the problem. But we are not the cause of all of these morphine, uh, all of these narcotic deaths in this country. We, we, we are not the pill mills. We don't give out OxyContin. We are not the bad guys. And Well, what we are are doctors who only write at the 90% level. You write for two things, antibiotics and pain medicine. And the reason is obvious. They come to us when they have acute pain or something has happened, an accident, an illness, an abrasion of this, that, and another thing. Uh, we're going to be visible, but you're right. Are we culpable? I would only advise my colleagues to just stop for a minute, ask a couple of questions, see what you can do to not be uh, included in this uh, chain of addiction. By the way, Rick, we do have a Tug Valley email here. Before we uh, we get into that, uh, there's there's um, one other thing I'd like to bring out. Yes, if you have an obvious laceration, fracture, uh, problem, that's that's a no brainer. I'm more concerned, frankly, where the there is no objective evidence necessarily of your headache, your, 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 your chronic back pain. And there are many, many people who do have chronic disabling back pain. And they get painted with this brush of the nurses say, he's, he's back again, and everybody rolls their eyes. And I'm really concerned. I'd rather over-treat some people than not treat the people who genuinely need it. And they're, and they're going to be the headache patients, and they're going to be the back pain patients. And you say, well, send them to their pain specialists. Greg, do you know any pain specialist? Are you aware of any? And you've worked many, many years. You can give me the name of a pain specialist that yeah, you know. Yeah, I, I understand. <laughs> you know what I'm trying to say? Yeah, you've asked. You've asked for the mythical beast, the unicorn of medicine, is the uh, pain specialist. Do most places have them? No, they don't. But there's always. There's usually somebody who's taken on addiction medicine or has was one of the internists, that sort of thing, who follows these people. But you're right. Um, we're asking them to to find the mythical beast who will manage their chronic pain. And I think that's, you know, it, it's the position we don't want to be in as emergency doctors. Well, you know, in addition, many of these patients are uh, uninsured, like patients, uh, or substantially underinsured, uh, California being one of the lowest paying Medi-Cal states, or Medicaid, we call it Medi-Cal here, but Medicaid insurance here, here is abysmal. So nobody wants to take these patients. And, and yeah. not only that, they're tough cases. Yeah, they are tough cases. And, and it, it's... But the management of those cases is usually not a 10-minute visit to an emergency room. It is going to require somebody who looks both forward and backward and can – can be, because if we really care about the patient in front of us, I don't want them chronically addicted if I've got something else I can do. And there are other things we can do. I treat a lot of headache patients with things other than narcotics – and they do very nicely. You know, it's now, kind of interesting that you mention that because, you know, in the, the emergency medical abstract series, we have um, a couple of papers that were looking at uh, the use of these paraspinal neck injections for bad migraines and, and, and the like. Done those for 20 years. And there's going to be a group of patients. I think this is the rule. There's no treatment which is universally useful. Uh, but I have patients who respond to that. Um, I think that Compazine is still an amazingly good drug in, in migraine patients. IV lidocaine is used in both chronic headaches and back pain patients. 
And now I'm going to start ta- stop talking about real medicine because we're into risk management here, Rick. <laughs> and one other point related to risk management. One of the reasons that this decision was allowed to be made is because the state of West Virginia has a a, a contributory negligence uh, option to uh, ch- to be em- employed, and it's noted in the decision here that I, something like forty some states have this. Where you can ask for, when you, where you can in, say contributory negligence, and in t- t- ten states at least, you can't you can't even bring a case under this uh, this um, premise. No, you cannot. Uh, we should point out, by the way, that West Virginia is only third of the fifty states uh, on the list of people who who get narcotics based on if you look at the number of uh, pills written per person in the state. Um, their third, I think it's uh, Alabama and Tennessee that rank above them, isn't it, Rick? I mean, that, that's correct. I don't know which which I, uh, maybe Alabama is first, but this is a issue of Appalachia. It's a, a, a it's an issue of the South. It's an issue where there's a lot of poverty. Um, and Greg, I don't know whether you've seen these documentaries where they have these workmen's cop mills. Where right. you go in there and uh, you get uh, you get put on relief, you get money for a workman's comp when there's nothing wrong with you. This is a, becomes a way of life in these communities where there is just no hope of any financial salvation. Yes. Well, on that cheerful note, <laughs> let me let me let me read the email. One of our good listeners writes: I have a question regarding the Tug Valley pharmacy case in your December issue. Where I currently work, we have a system that tries to track patients with chronic pain issues who frequently come to the emergency department for pain complaints. The idea of this system is to minimize the amount of pain medications and prescriptions these patients are given, in in, uh, parentheses, since their pain management doctors should be managing their chronic condition, and parentheses. Uh, Sometimes these patients are seen in the emergency department and are given a dose of pain medication, but no prescription. He doesn't say whether that's IM or or, uh, IV or PO or what it is. Can I interrupt you there? Yeah. I mean, the idea of giving a, let's say for the sake of discussion, is a shot of um, some narcotic, uh, some opiate, Uh, because the person's got pretty substantial discomfort Headache, back pain. This is this again. It's not a broken something or other. This is a headache or back pain. What is the likelihood when that narcotic wears off that this person is not going to need something uh, something substantial? I don't personally think this idea of I'll, I'll give you one shot now, but uh, here's your here's your handful of Motrin's. Rick, I'm just the messenger here. I got to get off my box. Reading. I'm going to get off this soapbox yeah, yeah, on here. Yeah, yeah. All right, I, I, I'm going to shut up. Yeah, somebody needs that soapbox. So, what, uh, do you think that giving them a dose of pain meds in the ED can also be considered part of the chain of addiction? I think it's probably less likely because the one thing when you give somebody a dose of something, they can't take it out and sell it on the street. And we all know that a lot of these people are obtaining some medications and turning it into cash. At least you've cut off that part of of the loop. The real question, though, is have you actually solved their pain problem? And uh, very difficult to answer. I know that this will need to play out in the courts, and there is no way to predict who can be at risk. But I wonder how far this can be taken. Uh, especially if malpractice will not cover this situation. And I promise you, folks, nobody's malpractice policy, nobody's covers you committing a felony, uh, being part of a drug mill. None of that is covered under malpractice. And um, would the doctors in these situations need to then pay for their own counsel uh, just even if they're just taken off the uh, case, the answer is your insurance company will decide what's covered under the insurance policy. But I promise you, if it has anything to do with distribution of drugs, illegal distribution of drugs, your insurance company is not going to pay your attorney.
Okay, my two cents is that the likelihood of you getting in trouble as an emergency physician in in this in the Tug Valley pharmacy situation is infinitesimal, infinitesimal, and I don't think that I I don't I don't want to see this slippery slope. I don't want to claim that this is a slippery slope, frankly. Rick, he's got he's got an additional question here. Which he, uh, didn't we give him the memo that memo that says you only get to ask one question per Especially show? Especially when you look at what his second question is. I know, I know it. God, uh, go ahead. Read read his question. All right. The group I am currently working for has a few physicians who feel that if a patient presents with a non-traumatic worst headache of their life, and a CT angiogram does not reveal an aneurysm, then the patient would not need an LP. I think that they may be a non... Oh, I think that they may be doing a non-contrast CT followed by a CT angiogram. Uh, they feel that it would be so unlikely the patient would have a subarachnoid hemorrhage that an LP is not necessary if you don't see an aneurysm. Have you heard of this approach to a non-traumatic worst headache of your life? I never have heard of this approach in residency, and I don't think it has been researched what do you think about this from a risk management point of view? And I think it's a great question. Yeah, I'm sorry you asked this question because you better have two hours now because Rick's got a soap. <laughs> he's got his other soapbox, which he's No, drinking. I don't. I don't have a soapbox on this. I think this is one of the things we should stay away from, Greg, is is the pure clinical medicine. <laughs> we should stay away from that. This is not, you know. These are lawsuits, right? These yeah, are this lawsuits. Law, this is not asking Dr. Henry about his medical opinion here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we have a we have a, a friend who has looked at this very extensively. Who says, in his view of the mathematics, it would take about seven hundred negative LPs to find one positive subarachnoid hemorrhage patient if they had a negative CT. Now, not everybody agrees with that negative CT angiogram. I guess this. I guess the strategy here is if you have a bad headache and I do a plain CT, and I see no blood, and then I do another CT angiogram, and I see no aneurysms, then you have no treatable lesions that I can that I can fix, number one. And number two, the incidence of aneurysms in human heads is one in 50. One in 50 people will have an, an aneurysm just sitting there. So uh, if you basically... It depend, uh, depends on how you look at that data. In fact, some people say it's one in 20 people have a, a something that could be considered an aneurysm. So the question is, what are you finding? What are you going to treat? But let's let, let's go back and, and, and look at the first premise here. One in 700. There are people who disagree with that number, Rick. Um, yeah, actually, uh, one of our other friends, Kevin Clower, says, I'm in the 700 club. I yeah. think that this is a serious enough problem that if I, I'll do 700 to find the one. I generally agree with Kevin, but I'm this is a stretch for me because there is you, – you just can't say, well, there's no no harm, no foul. The incidence of uh, post-lumbar puncture headaches is 30%. A goodly number of them are going to need a blood patch because they're not going to be resolved by anything else that you can do. There is other side effects. Uh, that That's by people, by the way, without the skill and the excellent hands to just slip that baby in there. But go ahead, Rick. Well, actually, we, we thought actually at one time that the size of the needle was a major determinant. And I and and there I think there are a few papers that say that. But I also read, read not that long ago, a paper said, no, really, that's not related to the incident. Since that, oh. It's the type of point of the needle. There is some data that suggests yes, I agree. That, that instead of using the cutting needle, you use the separating needle. The pencil now, point. The pencil point. The problem with that needle is you have to prep the entry with a little 11 blade or something because it doesn't penetrate the skin as easily. But I think I don't think that's a question anymore, Rick. I think that the, the leak, the post-spinal leak, is more dependent upon the 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 shape of the tip of the needle than the um, than the gauge of that needle. You'd have to acknowledge that if we were to estimate, we would say the vast, vast, vast majority of emergency physicians have not switched over to the pencil point needle. And I also believe that the incidence of doing lumbar punctures has gone down because there is no kids with meningitis anymore. So we don't have enough chance to practice on 
on, on people. So it, the only we're talking about encephalitis. How how common is that? It's not. Yeah. And and then you have my, viral meningitis. So you want to leave that stuff alone. Don't even go looking for that. Yeah. Well, let's uh, let's get back to what our our listener is really asking. Are we at this point willing to go with this newer data and say, eh, the chances we're going to find something we can fix with a coil is so small that if the CTA is normal, we're not going any further. And I don't think we can guarantee that that argument is going to go in court, Rick. I think you can still bring in reasonable people who have the Kevin Clower view of this that if a subarachnoid hemorrhage is considered the test at the 99.9% level is the spinal tap. And, you know, I guess you can practice it however you want, but that argument will be brought up if you send somebody home who then has a rebleed. 60% of people with a subarachnoid hemorrhage that is missed will re-bleed in the next seven days. In fact, the standard of care in America is to not be picked up on the first visit and to uh, bleed and go on to some other problem. Well, I have to agree with you. We are not aware of any kind of uh, cases where the um, allegation was that this approach is not good enough and doctor you are therefore negligent and you are going to pay your insurance company is going to pay up that i think one of the things that is so fascinating about this topic is the difference between the way uh subarachnoid hemorrhages are approached in this country where it is pretty much non-negotiable it's ct lumbar puncture uh, versus how it is practiced in canada uh ken milne was here overnight and in canada if they think that you, you have a nasty headache, they may or may not do a CT. And I can tell you, uh, probably at least a third, at least probably more, will not get a lumbar puncture thereafter. I, I understand that. I, I sit on the Canadian border to paraphrase Sarah Palin. I can see Canada from my house. And the, uh, the bottom line here is there is a border it's a different healthcare system, not so much different information and knowledge, but they sure as hell have a different risk level, and, and they do not have contingency law. You, no lawyer gets a percentage of the win. I think they have about a tenth the medical legal activity of the United States, Rick. And so uh, in all, res- all due respect to Ken, a great guy, a good friend— but I think that you cannot compare the risk situation of the two countries in the same way. Well, I think that your uh, insight there is right on target. We're not talking really about the medicine. No. We're talking about uh, risk management, and which is such so different between the two countries. The other thing I wanted to bring out is, you know, you mentioned the one in 700, which was kind of a mathematical calculation. Well, there's a terrific paper, absolutely terrific, in academic emergency medicine in the December issue, uh, 2015. It's by Dr. Sayer et al. Ken says he's a Canadian. I should have paid attention to that because it doesn't sound like a Canadian paper. But here's what they did. They had 2,248 patients with a headache suggestive of a lumbar puncture. Can you imagine? And then they... This is multiple hospitals, obviously. <laughs> obviously. <laughs> in Canada, it's multiple provinces. I mean, you, you don't get that many headaches. In any case, 2248, headaches suggestive of a subarachnoid who received a lumbar puncture after a normal CT. So here we have huge amount of data, 2248, normal CT. Then we did a lumbar puncture. What did they find? 4.8% were positive for blood. Okay, 15.6% were inconclusive. And nobody ever wants to talk about the inconclusive lumbar puncture, which in this case, one in six, one in six cases was inconclusive. Well, what it actually says is one in five cases was either positive or they couldn't tell. But that leaves 80% as negative. Yeah, the rest were negative. So, so 80% were negative. 
And now you got this mess where, okay, 5% were positive. Before we talk more about the 5% are positive, I'm not, I've never seen a number that says, tell me about the traumatic taps or, or I'm not sure it's a traumatic tap or, or uh, I'm not sure 16%, one in six. In any case, yes, 5% were positive, but not so fast here, Ali. Of the 92 positives, eight patients had an aneurysm, eight patients. That was 0.4% of the entire study population. So the, of the 92 positives, eight had an aneurysm. Eight had something you could do about it. Right, right. I understand that, Rick. I think we just have to conclude this from a risk standpoint. Science is ahead of the law. Uh, and we all may be in five years just saying, yeah, that number is good enough. And I think that this is the ideal spot with the patient for risk sharing for decision-sharing analysis here so that we can ask them a question. What are you willing to do with this? Because the bottom line is unless we share with them what the upside and the downside is, I got cases going right now where the claim is the patient didn't have enough information to make that decision. Well, you know, this this idea of shared decision-making, some people are saying, I'm sick of hearing about this in the emergency It's crap, department. mostly. But if there is a place, this may be a place. Well, the, yes, but one of the things that you need in shared decision-making is to know the numbers. You cannot talk to somebody about, do you want TPA for your stroke? If you don't know what the numbers are, which mean, and the numbers are, 12% get better and 6% get worse. If you don't know those numbers, then, you're, then your ability to convey this is, is very mystical. Right, exactly. <laughs> what are you basing your decision on? And here, it's, a, it's another thing to say, well, do you want stirry strips or do you want stitches? You know, that, that's, that's a no-brainer. But here, it's now, – now, you were talking about 1 in 700. When you do the math for the Sayer paper, which we just went through, it's 1 in 250. Right. right. So, you know, that may that, – so, but, 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 you, you have to know these numbers be so, so that to give the people a fair chance. Otherwise, they're going to say, what would you do, Doc? And, you know, your, your value system may be different than ver, their value system. Right. And who knows? Maybe they don't like their mother. I mean, there's lots of things here. I w- I w- here's the question. Here's the question, Rick. Would you put your kid on a plane that had a 1 in 250 chance of crashing? Because that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about a disease which is potentially life-threatening. And, and death in subarachnoid hemorrhage is frequently the good news. <laughs> the last thing you want to be, you know, is in a nursing home someplace. So I, I think that, um, you know, I don't think this is a settled issue is what we have to say to our to our colleague. It, it, it's not simple. It's not simple. The thing is we know of no cases that have been presented because the settlements are usually secret. You, can't, you don't know what the settlements are. But so right. there's no legal cases that are reported in your, in your book there that talk about this approach and whether – well, some, would somebody be volunteering – for this, I think we should have a, you know, we need a yes. volunteer. <laughs> yes. Anybody out there who would like to invest themselves and or their family member in, in our study, let us know. Before we get on to other cases, uh, in the last uh, few months, we started some small nitpicky things just to, uh, to make ourselves happy. One of those was uh, ethical take-home points in emergency medicine. A few months ago, we did the first five. I want to hit my next five and talk about the effect on, on lawsuits. The, Ethics the, and lawsuits? Are they in this? You can't say that in the same sentence. Can yeah, you? you can. You can. Uh, if, if you control both your, your lips and your tongue, Rick, you can say them in the same sentence. Honesty is the best policy. This is just like your mother taught you. Well, there's some very good data coming out of Rick Boothman and his people at the University of Michigan about the fact that you go in, you tell them the truth, not necessarily in the emergency department, but at some point in time, the hospital makes the effort to talk to people when things have gone badly. 
That's not to say you did anything wrong, but at least be honest about it. Patients are actually happier. They're less likely to sue. They're less likely to give you trouble if they know something called the truth. And the nice thing as we get older, and Rick and I are (laughs) fading away here, if you tell the truth, you don't have to remember the last lie you told because the truth is going to be the same the next time it comes out. I'd keep that one. Now, wait a minute now. Now, wait a minute. Before you go on, this Boothman guy, we did papers that he had done a long, long time ago when the University of Michigan became self-insured and was dealing with a full disclosure policy on error. And they were one of the first major medical institutions to develop a full disclosure policy and publish their results. And yes... I think that the number of lawsuits went down. Well, I think what happened was the number of the number, the amount of settlements, the dollars went went down. But I think maybe the, as your friend Neil Little would say, it takes seven years for us to know how many lawsuits are going to be ultimately generated. So uh, Neil was not too comfortable with the initial data from Boothman, but I think you're right and. All the American Hospital Association, all of these hospital organizations now are claiming to have a full disclosure policy. I think one of the things you have to be very careful about is that the people who do this disclosure know how to do it. And it may not be you, frankly. That's correct. Yes. (laughs) It may be some other professional in the hospital who's been taught, who's very empathetic, who's, you know, knows all the things that they need to do. But yes, uh, nobody's going to disagree with being, be, being honest. Yeah, well, and, and keep the next uh, point is keep your promises to the patient. If you say you're going to get back to them a few days, the worst thing you can do in a service industry is to overpromise and underperform. If, you, if you're going to get back to them in two days, get back to them in two days. Because whenever you fail to produce... Their patients are going to be on top of you. I got a wife like that. The last thing you want to do is not keep your <laughs> your word. Because if you say you're going to be back in 20 minutes, at 21 minutes, it's your butt. You know, they're, they're India. We have a, a long list of the smart things, the things, the things that smart pro ER doctors do. Yeah. And one of the things we know and if we've talked about this before, is that we expect that the uh, results of your CAT scan will be back in an hour. You tell them results in a half an hour. They basically say, wow, that was a lot faster than I anticipated. So you basically over-deliver and you extend the uh, expectation in terms of the time. All right. So what we're saying is, remember, under-promise, over-perform, you can't get into trouble that way. No one's ever bitched because you walked into the room early. <laughs> well, with yeah, the you can overdo the this, though. The yeah. likelihood of this infected getting infected is about 100%, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's getting infected. Wonderful doctor. Next point. You're still the steward of, of not only patients, but the society's resources. I, I'm getting more and more cases, and as I do more and more of the residencies, We're having real discussions about supervision, the ordering of testing. I think this point needs to be emphasized again. Doctors claim that all the test ordering they do is because of the medical legal situation. All the papers published say that isn't the case, that even when we get rid of most of the medical legal problems, doctors have been taught to practice since the time they were little med students running around on the wards. And if uh, there needs to be some supervision in this training where, where we really tr- practice some sort of stewardship and we can't pawn that off just on the legal system, the lawyers aren't the only problem. Well, you know, I think that there are virtually no motivational elements to you not having a great time with your pen and checking off everything. You get paid more. You think you're, you'll get sued less. You think the patients will be more, more satisfied when you do more, more tests. Most of, you know, every one of those things have, has been disproven. But the fact is, this is, this is evidence-proofed, Greg. 
I think that you and I will go bang to the moon into our graves, and we're not going to change any of this. I, I really that. don't. I think I there needs that. to be some financial incentives that say, you know, you order less, you make more. Yep. I, I, well, I think it's not just about the individual doctor. It's the entire healthcare system. We decided we would give you a level five payment if you put down all of their systems reviewed and found to be negative. That is the single largest lie in America next to uh, I think I love you, but I've got to know for sure. All right. Next. Uh, yes, we, we have a uh, next point is. We have a professional duty at all times to the patient. And whenever you see somebody who is uh, saying, well, I'm going to, you know, the health system requires me to do this, uh, that, or I've got to, I've got to refer it to this person or that person, you and the group need to sit down and talk a little bit because nobody actually retained you face to face except the patient. Not the insurance company, not the hospital, not the healthcare system. And um, I have some, I've been consulting on some recent cases where that is actually alleged that the patient did not get the correct referral or in the correct amount of time, that sort of thing, based on the rules of the healthcare system. Well, that's really and, interesting because I wrote a fairly passionate plea in uh, EP Monthly to decrease the knee-jerk referrals where you say, see your doctor tomorrow. Right. You know, no matter what the heck is wrong with you, you can have a, a nasty ankle sprain. You know that's going to be two, three weeks. And if you say, see your doctor in two or three days, I view that as an unethical, unethical referral because you know nothing will be accomplished. The patient will generate a bill. The patient will lose time. And I think that Everybody of you who does that, which are many, many, many physicians, are basically thinking they're covering their ass at the patient's expense. It's not only it's not only the doctors who believe that, the risk managers at hospitals, the people who write these forms, et cetera, et cetera, that the patients go home with think that's right. You ought to see patients back when the disease entity has a chance of going badly. For example, if you have a vomiting child who's still vomiting the next morning, you got to see him back. I mean, that's that's pretty much a no-brainer. Uh, when you've got a wound, you've just sewed up, and they and they washing it, and they're, and they're looking at it, and it's not red and pussy and that sort of thing. Why should they come back? That's another case where you need to basically give patients the expectations so that if you're treating a strep throat for the sake of discussion and you, you're given medication, penicillin and the, and the like, it's not going to be 100% better by, uh, by in the next day unequivocally. So you need to tell people this is going to take two or three days to resolve. And um, that way they're not going to be jumping to their doctors. And the, I think the best example of that is um, when people have bronchitis. If you tell a bronchitis patient, well, if, this is still, if you're still coughing in five or six days, uh, check in with your doctor, you're not doing them any favor. Bronchitis... Multiple studies have shown this is a, uh, you know, 15-day, two-and-a-half-week, two, two three-week disease, and it's not going to get better in five days. And and when you go in in five days, what are you going to be expecting? I want the z pack. Yeah, of you course. Just create this cascade. And uh, the, the last point for this week is, uh, this month, is never treat your own family, particularly when it has anything to do with a uh, pain medication that requires a DEA number. Uh, most it's states... It's illegal. Yeah, it's a legal number one. But I can't tell you the number... I've got a new case right now which has to do with the cousin of somebody who saw the doc outside the department. The doc wrote a prescription not covered, of course, by his or her insurance company, and uh, now the disease did not go as planned. You know, in general, <laughs> stay out of treating uh, friends, family, cousins, neighbors. Just be careful. Your insurance doesn't cover it. And you know what? You never have an absolutely 
clear view of what's going on because we all bring our own emotions to every family member we treat, and we just can't do it correctly. So being involved in the middle of another one of these things, never treat your own family. Greg, uh, is it time for a case or two here? Yes. Are you, are you coming back? Oh, no, back? wait a second. <laughs> now, wait a second. I wanted, I, we started something else a couple months ago, which I want to add on to because I think people ought to be writing into us about this. We started uh, and, and uh, let out our spleens on people who were late for work. I hate somebody who's 15 minutes late to the department. So we, we, gave, we gave five or six uh, excuses I've heard as a director. I'll give you five more. And you can respond to them, Rick. The first one of those is, I tried a different route today and got lost. Next one, I'm sick. I really shouldn't be here today. Then why are you here, fool? <laughs> but there's, at least if you're going to be sick and be here, be, be on here. Time. Time. Yeah, exactly. Oh, I've ne- it's never taken me th- this long to get here before. I have no idea what happened. I had to stop by medical records. And the last one was, oh, the administrator wanted to talk to me about a problem with one of my cases. Just what we need is somebody who's already in trouble on a on an interpersonal basis with a patient, and now they're late to see the other patients. So, people out there in uh, Radio Land, if you uh, if you have other interesting things that have been said, please send them in. And I've got plenty more on my list for next month, Rick. But what uh, we ought to be going now. Don't we have a case here that uh, we wanted to talk about from Randy Danielson? Yes, we do. And I also have something that I just got today from Mike Ritter from, uh, in this newsletter from Horty Springer that I think we right. ought to make sure that we pick up. But anyway, Randy, where's my paper here on uh, – okay, Randy, yeah, I got it, got it, got it. Randy Danielson is a, a PA. He's the editor for PAs on clinician reviews, which goes to about 90,000 PAs each month. Clinician Reviews has a has a PA editor and a NP editor. Randy is the PA editor. Randy participates in our emergency medicine boot camp courses that we've created for nurse practitioners, PAs, yeah. of which you're very familiar, Greg. A major a, contributor. And yeah. You are a major contributor. Well, in any case, Randy gives some talks at that course as well. And, I, and before I get into the case that he sent over to us, I wanted to acknowledge that Randy had received in 2015 the highest award of the American Academy of Physicians Assistant, which is the uh, Eugene A. Stead Award, which is um, extraordinary. I mean, you know, there must be, I don't know, 100,000 PAs in this country, and Randy gets the award. Yeah. Well, Randy, Randy is an exceptional man. I mean, he's been uh, he's uh, the dean of a major healthcare institution. He's written extensively. Uh, we're uh, pleased and proud to call him our friend and a contributor in our activities. So let's do the case. Yeah. Okay. 64-year-old freaking visitor who presents with multiple provocations of being intoxicated. Never heard that one before. Yeah. Right. Patients <laughs> typically found um, in, in the street or in a bar, brought into the emergency department by ambulance. Well, here, in this case, the person was brought in at one thirty, and certainly smelled of alcohol and was clinically intoxicated, but could be aroused by light touch. And by 7 a.m., the patient could walk, and they basically let the person sleep it off. And at 7 a.m., the person said, you know, can I have something to eat, which is always a good sign. And um, at 7.15 in the morning, they discharged the patient to find the and shortly thereafter, within minutes, other staff saw this, the people, the person staggering on the street. They brought him back in. And at, at that time, so now we're, we're about seven or eight hours into this, they did a blood alcohol. And the blood alcohol was 261. So this blood alcohol must have been pretty significant when they came in. But in any case... Yeah, but 261, I got patients who at 261, Rick, are, are starting to go into D- DTs. Okay, now, you know where this is going. The plan, yeah, yeah. let them sleep it off again. Obviously, the person is drunk. No other tests were ordered. And sometimes around 3 a.m., the staff noted difficulty walking and talking. A head CT was done at 4.30 in the morning. Now, this is 24, about 27 hours after this person first arrived. 
a head CT is done. And what do you think it shows? Blood alcohol, yeah. by the way, at that time was zero. Oh, that's good. And the CT shows, shows a stroke. That All that proves, by the way, is that you're not actually serving drinks in the alcohol uh, of alcohol in the emergency department. We think that's good. But uh, so tell us about his sub subdural hematoma, Rick. No, actually, it was a stroke. And anyway, the uh, she's this person became unresponsive, arrested, and died. The autopsy thrombosis of a left internal carotid and middle cerebral artery, which is kind of interesting because uh, you're the neurologist here, Greg. The internal middle cerebral artery is the typical stroke that people get, and it has a typical clinical manifestation of right, you know. One-sided things, uh, you know, with regarding arm and leg, uh, opposite the yes. side of the, and 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 yet the nuances here were not there. But in any case, what did they sue for? Well, what they sued for, of all things, was an EMTALA violation, an EMTALA because they claimed in an inadequate examination to determine whether there were a person had a uh, a medical emergency, uh, inadequate workup. I'm willing to bet, Rick, that along with the Amtala violation is going to follow the concomitant civil action for for regress of damages. The Amtala action is a federal question, but believe me, if you win your Amtala action, the chances you're going to get money in the concomitant civil action are pretty damn good. The Amtala uh Action is like the the warm up game, right? <laughs> Once you win the warm up game, you're you're going to win the, the major leagues. Right, it's right, like exactly. first first of all, Itala doesn't isn't going to get your family one nickel. This is federal. The money that is taken from the hospital goes into the federal treasury. It doesn't go to the person who did not get the adequate examination. So you have, but you're right. This is an opportunity here for okay, uh, I'm going to be able to show that it was so egregious that the government basically came down on these people. Even the government was smart enough to know that you malpracticed on my person. Yeah, I I think this case just reinforces what we've said. And and by the way, every one of us has had such a case that when we reexamined the patient, we found more harm. I can't tell you how many people I took over for it 6.30 or 7 in the morning, and they'd say, well, those five guys are just sleeping it off. I bet one out of every five had a broken wrist, a broken rib, something here or there that was also wrong. The others, when I shook them and they didn't wake up, we did have to do their their uh, CTs and see what else is going on. You know, I, I, I think it's too easy to blame alcohol for patients' problems, and we should uh, we we need to examine occasionally if they're going to be say, laying in there, they got to do something. So I, I think we ought to examine patients more. Really. All right, Greg. Do you want to give us a couple cases? Yeah, I'll do that, Rick. I, I want to talk about two cases in particular, which are not directly emergency emergency doctors are involved in the case, but both of these cases are suicides. Interestingly enough, both of them are in the state of New York, and they tell similar stories, and that has to do with who's going to assume the responsibility to let people out of of the hospital, out of the emergency department, who do you let see the cases, that sort of thing. First one we've got is a 52-year-old self-employed painter who suffered from alcoholism, had left his home, has left his friends, has left his family. And uh, they finally, family found him, uh, took him to the hospital. The emergency doc admitted him to the hospital where he was kept for five days. And the psychiatric consulting service addressed what they believed to be his attempted suicide problem and his depression. He, let, he was discharged from the hospital and was found by the family the next day in a field having stabbed himself to death. Ooh. Now, that's, that's, a, that's somebody sincerely interested in, in killing themselves. If you can stab yourself to death, that's pretty impressive. Although we know that men are more likely to successfully 
commit suicide. Women are more likely to do gestures. And that the men have the most, the more bizarre the way they want to do it, the more likely they are going to do it. Yes. Well, it was it was interesting that the family, of course, sued not only the doctor and the hospital and everybody who was involved in this in this case and basically said this, uh, where is the standard? How do you decide who's sick, who isn't? You should have done this, 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 this and this. Now, remember, this is the same state where we had the Kowalski decision that said if the patient was awake, alert, could you could talk to that patient, they could let him out of the emergency department, and that was okay. Well, how come we can't apply that same thing in this case? Because they went right back after him, and uh, $2.4 million later, the psych people are wondering, you know, what exactly did we do wrong here? I think that that psych uh, cases are incredibly difficult. I would pass on to our colleagues in the emergency department, when you've got somebody who is a threat to self or others, uh, you can go after them for a non-voluntary admission. That's what these are for. I don't know a state where that doesn't exist. And uh, the the uh, psychiatrist in this case, even though the patient was awake and alert, could have petitioned to keep this patient in the hospital against his will until he generally thought he was cleared. The exact same case, the facts are minusculely different. In another New York case, and again, um, interviewed by multiple doctors, seen by the emergency department. The emergency doc in this case did not get involved in the in the case because he was smart enough to call in multiple other levels of care and providers who came in to interview these patients. Now, I'm glad the emergency doc wasn't involved in the in the case in the actual litigation, but I would pass on the reason he didn't become involved is because he turned it over to somebody else who, quote-unquote, has a higher standard of care with regard to psychiatric conditions. Again, this patient was gone from the hospital. I don't think they were gone 24 hours, and they uh, they committed suicide. Um, and uh, again, the uh, as far as the uh, as the actions of the hospital are concerned, the patient was in short period of time. Said, "I want to leave now," and they didn't petition the state uh, to hold him again. You know, on a sort of an against medical advice sort of thing, because because they considered him dangerous to self or others. He went out and they killed themselves. Fortunately, the ER doc was out of it by the time that happened. You know, I think obviously these are really, really tough cases. There's no blood test to say that you are going to commit suicide. I don't think there's any kind of psychiatric battery that can um, be used infallibly to say you're not going to commit suicide. I mean, it might statistically be such that you're not, but it's not infallible. And I think that for emergency physicians, the easy thing to do is to put holds on them. The problem is, is that, you know, my community hospital, they're not going to take an involuntary hold. It's not a psychiatric hit. Where are you going to send these people? How many of them have Blue Cross? Well, I know where they're going to send them in your county, Rick. They're going to go to uh, USC, uh, LA County, aren't they? Yes, but you may be holding these patients literally for days, literally for days, waiting for them to open up a bed. Uh, and, you know, the, then you have to call the, the police because I'm not allowed to put on a psychiatric hold. They have to put on a psychiatric hold like because the police have much more experience and training in determining who's suicidal or not than we yeah. do, of course. Yeah. It is Rick. so freaking nutty. Yeah, there's no way we're going to get around this. Uh, there are two cases where, uh, you know, go ahead and act. I'd rather them sue me 
for uh, for holding somebody against their will than the, than letting somebody out and and see the the problem also is these patients are not only suicidal but it, if you're at that level homicidal comes into the case we certainly have plenty of those cases where a husband has gone nuts kills his wife then shoots himself sort of thing homicide and suicide I think uh, sleep in the same bed when it comes to some of these things. I think one of the one of the problems is is that um, we get used to seeing young women got broke, you know, broke up with their first boyfriend kind of thing, takes a few extra pills and is brought into yeah. the emergency department. Took every bat, took every back room in the house, right? Yeah, yes. You and I know that that. The likelihood of any negative outcome there is is very very small. Right. We also know that in many cases it's going to be very hard to get a psychiatrist to come in and see that person and apply their higher level of care. And we also know that it's going to be virtually impossible to transfer them to a hospital that will take them as a psychiatric hold. So I think one of the things that happens is we say, well, you know, to tell you the truth. You know, I really don't think that this person is at risk because the alternatives are untenable. So you basically say, you know, I think that it's probably going to be okay. I'm going to get you to follow up. Uh, at least you'll be able to see your family doctor tomorrow. I'll call your family doctor. You'll have somebody to see and talk to you kind of thing. And I think that that's perfectly reasonable. But but it's we, we, we get boxed in on these cases and yep. you have to be careful that when you have a male who comes in and it did a suicide gesture, you don't say this, well, you know, it's probably, I can't get him, I can't get anybody to see him. I can't get him admitted to a psychiatric hold. I'm going to let him go. You can't. Not as often. Not as often. Let me tell you that the current president of the American Psychiatric Association has commented on this and said, there is no predictably good scale there you go that tells you who's going to kill themselves he said is the gestalt of the and and the experience of the practitioner and he said if we had a test if we had a scale you remember rick uh, many years ago we all learned the sad person scale all these sorts of things you added up a bunch of numbers that never held up as valid enough to let anybody out on that Well, I don't think there's any any test, any scale. You could have 20 elements. You won't. And I agree with this guy 100%. So how come they lost a case? There must have been more to it than, than, than this little summary that you have. Well, all I can say is there is some sympathy there for families. And uh, whatever whatever it is, money can still be lost. No emergency doctor lost money in these cases, I would point out, because they, they bumped it up the line. In our place, it's now uh, psychiatric social workers. I mean, I haven't seen a psychiatrist since... You know, one of them was, you know, cut his cut his hand on his uh, non-skill saw. But we don't see psychiatrists in the emergency department. I I have a problem with that. We have in Los Angeles what's called the PET team, the psychiatric evaluation team. And they're sent out by, I don't know whether it's, the, I think it's the county, the psychiatric evaluation team. Are these people doctors? Are these people psychiatrists? Do these people know... What is their frame of reference with regards to the assessment of the suicidality of a, a patient? It's like, it frightens me to death. And frankly, these guys come out, they've got, you know, their head tattooed, they've got bones through their nose, they've got, bone, you know, lips, they, you know, they look like they, their experiences that they've tried to commit suicide. You know who they were two years ago, Rick? Patients. Uh, and, and all of us know that. I don't, uh, I don't get it. I don't get it either, but but you know what? This is about risk management. This isn't about common sense. And so, you know what? If you have to call in certain people to take the the load off, at least the risk management load, I guess you got to do it. Do we have time for one more funny uh, uh, case? Actually, I honestly don't think so. Woo! Too bad. Is it like super... Can you cut to the chase, as they yeah, say? Yeah, I can cut to the chase here. This is a Texas case. Guy came in and said, uh, they gave me eardrops for my eye infection. 
So I went home and I put the eardrops, it's cortisporin drops, in my in my eye. So he says, and then I went blind. So we got a lawyer to take this case, and they and they asked to have not a jury trial but a bench trial. And the judge kept saying, "This doesn't make any sense." And people from the manufacturer came came in and said, "If you put this eardrop in your eye." It caused a little irritation for a few seconds and nothing else. Well, come to find out the loss of vision in this guy's eye was actually a retinal detachment, uh, which he had had received in one of his seven trips to the state penitentiary. And uh, he at least lost the case. And the uh, judge started some actions against the attorney uh, for an unethical lawsuit. So I think that sometimes we, we have to take small victories where we get them. Want wine of the month? Yeah, real quick, sir. Okay. Wine of the month. Understand that, that Robert Parker, again, one of my gurus, publishes The Wine Advocate. And even the French consider him one of the four or five major people in the world to test this stuff. Looked at the 2013 Northern California wines, which is, you know, all the names you'd know, Sonoma, Napa, Valleys, all that sort of thing. He says the 2013 year, which is now perfect for tasting, is the best year since he started. He says in 37 years, he's never seen wine so good. And he said... Northern California wine is the equal of any wine in the world. And uh, and he actually said these are the these are the people who are going to be winning all the new awards. He also thanks the Chinese for keeping our wine industry afloat because they buy the stuff by the gallon. The one thing I would point out is Michael Mondavi, the famous Mondavi uh, Robert Mondavi family and offshoot of that group has now something called emblem proprietary red comes out of a small spot of napa at 35 bucks a gal at 35 bucks a bottle as is good according to parker as drinking the 250 dollar a bottle opus one or the plump jack 35 bucks a bottle and you know what for a for a wine that he considers world class that's reasonable that's not un- unreasonable, and uh, I, I, I'm going to lay a few cases of that away. This is too good to be true. Cases? Cases. You expect to be around a while, I take it. Well, and my children my children all know where the good wine is, and the day I die, they're going to open a bottle, and uh, they'll. I'm sure they're going to pour it over my coffin, but they'll, they may pass it through their kidneys first. You know, I, I have no idea. Okay, Gregory, thanks very much. That's the uh, January 2016 issue of Risk Management Monthly. Take care, Greg. Bye.